Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of VRT by recapping pages 174 through 192. This section really acts as kind of the, the meat of the story. Things are heating up, some things, other revelations are offered. And once again, I'm just reminded of how much Wolf in VRT is just telling us a yarn through unconventional means. He's developed in the last two texts all of his themes and ideas, and now he's just paying them off in this book. I think it's the most fun to read of the three for me. And we're still left last time with this lingering mystery of how John Marsh is in prison and how his effects made it to this officer who's overseeing his case during one late hot night on San Croix. Well, we're going to find out more about that in this episode. So let's just get into the recap now. This episode is going to be split just about equally between Dr. Marsh's prison narrative and his St. Anne journal. We open with the prison narrative, which begins with the sentence, 47 has been knocking on the pipe. Shall I tell you what he said? And Brandon, we've seen the number 47 before in this novel. It was of no consequence at all when we first saw it. Do you remember where it was? Yeah, this is the number of David's pipes that number five founds when he returns home after prison. We're going to be asking a question in our discussion about whether or not we think we have found any significance to this number other than mere coincidence. Yeah, I have to say, I didn't remember that that's what the number was from. It did jump out to me as being fraught with significance. This jumped out at me because the number 47 is hugely significant in Star Trek. There's an ongoing joke in all of the Star Trek series since The Next Generation in which the number 47 is spoken in dialogue or appears on the screen of, I don't know, something like a quarter or a third of the episode. Episodes, which is because one of the big Star Trek writers, a guy named Joe Minoski, uh, was a member of the 47 Society at Pomona College. And just that made it the number jump out to me. And then I was scrambling through, looking through page after page, and finally saw, ah, yes, the panpipe. So I'm looking forward to digging in on that. Yeah, we'll have something to say about it. And I'm not sure how much, but we'll at least be addressing it. Yeah, right. One thing I will say here before we have the discussion in the discussion episode, that it's not just that we have the number 47 here again. We also have the word pipe here. So I'm suspicious of this, and I'm looking forward to digging in on it. Okay, now, well, now that we have laid the groundwork for having a thorough discussion of just the first sentence of this section, uh, let's really get into what's happening here. Dr. Marsh relates his conversation with the prisoner in cell 47, which is all carried out by by tapping on these pipes in in the prison code. The conversation is difficult for Marsh because he has to tap on the pipe with just his hand, and, and that hurts. Other prisoners, though, have managed to acquire stones or shells or a spoon or, or you know something else for this purpose, but Marsh hasn't been there long enough to have acquired a tool that he could use this way, and so their conversation is a little brief. But the gist of it is that 47 wants to know who the new prisoner on Marsh's floor is. Prisoner 47 caught sight of him, and he knows he's an old man with long white hair, but he doesn't know his name or what he's been arrested for. And Marsh doesn't know either. He he doesn't even know anything about it. In fact, it turns out Prisoner 47 knows more than Marsh does, even though they're on the same floor, supposedly. The conversation between Marsh and 47 switches to why each of them is in prison. And Marsh tells 47 that he is a political prisoner, though we know that he's a criminal prisoner. And we know that uh, objectively from the perspective of the officer who is going through his documents and has seen that. Right. Marsh only says he's a political prisoner because he wants to see what the other inmate, 47, will say. And I suppose he thinks it's a safer bet to say he's a political prisoner than a criminal because he might get a better answer from his friend. And 47 says that he also is a political prisoner and he wants to know which side Marsh is on. We don't know anything about this. We don't know what the issue is, let alone what the sides in the issue are. Uh, But this is a really interesting conversation. Marsh asks 47 to tell him first, which may be because he's worried about incriminating himself somehow. 
but it's probably really because he doesn't actually know very much about the political conflicts on San Croix either. But 47 does tell Marsh that he is on the side of the 5th of September. Do you have any idea if Wolf is making some kind of reference here with this 5th of September movement? I think Wolf is just giving us a political conflict in the name of a movement. The only thing that really pops into my head is the 5th of November, which is Guy Fawkes Day. And so maybe Wolf is making a sly reference to some citizens trying to overthrow the parliament on San Croix, which is disgustingly corrupt, as we'll find out in this prison narrative. Yeah, 5th of September works perfectly fine in the meter of the song that everybody knows, just as 5th of November does. Remember, remember, the 5th of September would work just fine. I, I had to wonder if it was a reference to the date when the First Continental Congress convened here in Philly in 1774. And of course, that Continental Congress then went on to be essentially the government of the 13 colonies during the American War of Independence, which then becomes the United States of America. Uh, but again, I'm just grasping at straws there, and we don't really find out any detail about what the political ideologies at play are here. But given Wolf's penchant for putting in-jokes in his books, this might very well just be Damon Knight's birthday or something like that. Right, we right. Well, none of this is of, of any real consequence, at, at least not right now. What Marsh really wants to do is to write down the story of his arrest, uh, of how he came to be in this prison. And I say, yes, please, I would really like to know this. What's aggravating, though, and we get this intermittently with the conversation with prisoner 47 is that we're only going to be told how but we still don't know why the how at least is really quite fascinating and this is going to be a lot of fun to dig into this for starters we learned that marsh was arrested the very night that we last saw him in the first novella the night that he was in the basement at the maison du chien talking about cloning so the very night that number five murdered maitre and we learned also that Dr. Marsh was planning to meet with the president of a university in Port Mimizan. Uh, probably this is the university in Port Mimizan, and that he expected to be offered a department chair. So I think that sheds some light on some of the things we were speculating about last time. That night, or really, it's very early in the morning, Dr. Marsh returns home from the Maison du Chien, and home is a room that he is renting at a house owned by a woman named Madame Duclos. Now, spelled slightly differently, Madame Duclos is a character from the Marquis de Sade's pornographic novel, The 120 Days of Sodom, which the Marquis de Sade wrote while he himself was a prisoner in the Bastille, a political prisoner of sorts, uh, under essentially the same circumstances that Dr. Marsh is writing this narrative. So I'm maybe a little suspicious of the veracity of this account. I think we've seen before the care with which Wolf uses to choose names, particularly in this trilogy of novellas. And so, again, what we're getting here is the emphasis on this being a type of prison narrative and Wolf making meaningful allusions to draw our attention to the type of story we're supposed to be paying attention to. Yeah, fortunately, there is going to be 99% less pornography here in this story. Right. <laughs> well, when Marsh returns home, he finds it strangely quiet, but he doesn't think anything of it at that moment. He worries about oversleeping for his meeting with the university president, and so he leaves a note for Madame Duclos to wake him at 10. And he comments about his very bad handwriting here, and then he muses about how he will have students write on the chalkboard for him, or he will just mimeograph typed-up handouts. Uh, and of course, I, I love this history of the future detail here. Mimeographs and chalkboards have gone extinct here in 2018, but we still don't have an interstellar civilization, we don't have sophisticated robots, and we certainly don't have human cloning. I, I want to draw attention to one thing in this section, which is this call to the mirror in his room. Um, we learn a few things about the mirror. For some reason, the prisoner here is narrating about it. And he says, mirrors I have found, I mean, good ones of silvered glass, not polished bits of metal, are quite expensive in Port Mimizan. The last time we saw a mirror in this story was when number five and his brother David shattered a mirror uh, while number five was in the midst of a real kind of identity crisis in order to kill the slave. And we're going to have a a number of references in this account of Marsh's arrest that 
call us back to that scene in number five. We're going to meet the inspector of sewers in Bart Mimizan, um, in the parks department. We're going to meet somebody who looks like they had surgery, like, you know, we've been told the slaves might. So I'm not exactly sure what all that means, but Wolf wants us to have that in mind as we're reading this account of the arrest of John Marsh. And the detail about the mirror is brought up here because of a concern for the the monetary value of it, its representation as a commodity here, though we're going to see that it's going to do some other things in this scene. When Marsh reaches his room, he finds that it's already occupied by three men who have been waiting for him. And one of the men, as you suggest, Brandon, has a horribly scarred head, like he's been tortured or like he's had brain surgery. This perhaps is a callback to the fifth head of Cerberus, but this detail might also become important if we end up doing a a sort of usual suspects reading of the origin of a story, which also, of course, had a character with a scarred head. And I expect we will end up doing that kind of a reading in our final wrap-up episode. But aside from this scar, they all look very similar. They have pointed chins, black brows, and narrow eyes. And Dr. Marsh even supposes that they might be brothers. And we get a detail here again about the mirror when Marsh catches sight of himself in it. And of course, that's obviously very important. But what I love most about this is that it lets Wolf describe Marsh's top hat and his second best cape. Uh, I love the costumery. It's fantastic. Wolf really, Wolf really sets up kind of the, the mise-en-scene in this room with great expertise. We learn all about the kind of things the uh, men who have come to arrest Wolf have with them, what the room is like. There's a lot of beautiful descriptions in this section of this room that really calls to mind, like the Gilded Age America, which is exactly where we have exactly the type of scenery that we see in fifth head of Cerberus, the first novella as well. And this is a pretty long scene here in the story. And what, what happens next is a kind of comedy of errors. The three men are not well dressed. And in fact, they really look to be low level flunkies yet at the same time, they also seem to be the local police. Marsh even asked this question explicitly though it's in indirect discourse he says i asked if i were under arrest and if they were police the man in the needlepoint chair answered no professor certainly not which is no to which question right um he asked two questions and the answer is just no so there's definitely something fishy going on here yeah, they inform marsh that he has to be searched though he is not being arrested he's not being charged with any crime the, the search itself is actually to see if there's any reason he should be arrested. And, of course, this would be a violation of our civil rights here in America. And, and this custom doesn't sit well with Marsh, who is, in fact, an American. But the men inform him that here it is very bad to be formally arrested. People who are arrested are almost never released. But it's totally possible merely to be searched and questioned and even detained for a very long time without actually being formally arrested, and then just let go if there is no further reason to keep you. And therefore, they say, Marsh should not force them to arrest him. These guys are real thugs, and I just love the way they operate. A lot of this scene uh, we'll be talking about in the discussion. One thing I want to point out here is that there is no presumption of innocence in this society whatsoever. And we'll see as they begin to reveal their kind of Byzantine and Baroque law system um, that laws are really designed to have a reason to entrap or imprison anybody at any time. But laws like that are always meant to be ignored unless the authority wants to bring you in on charges. And we still don't know what Marsh has done. He certainly doesn't believe he's done anything that would cause these men to come to his room and search him like this. And what's more, it it turns out that these three men are not the police in any way that we would recognize. All public service jobs on Saint-Croix, or at least here in Port Mimizan, are carried out by the same group of workers, and that the specific function of each person can change from day to day. And so someone might be a civil engineer on Monday, or a crewman on a patrol boat on Tuesday, and then an inspector of cats on Wednesday. And it just turns out that this particular night, the three of them have the job of coming to 
and search and interrogate Dr. Marsh, even though they have no particular training or expertise in doing this. That's all extremely unsettling. The leader of these men finds Dr. Marsh's copy of A Field Guide to the Animals of St. Anne while they're searching his room, and on one of the fly leaves at the back of the book are some faded, handwritten mathematical tables. Dr. Marsh explains that those were already there when he purchased the book. They were written by some former owner, which is why they're so faded. But the leader of these civil servants is suspicious, and he says that the numbers approximate a parabola. And we don't ever really find out what's going on here. This conversation gets interrupted a little bit. But of course, this is likely a table that's used for taking long-range shots with a rifle. These are the uh, sorts of table that a hunter would use out on a field expedition in St. Anne, where you might also want this guide to the animals. And Marsh here claims he doesn't know what these tables are for, though we've seen in the expedition that Marsh has taken a lot of shot at animals. He's good with guns, and that it's VRT who's not actually good with any weapons of any kind. Um, And the fact that the field guide to the animals of St. Anne seemed, at least just in terms of, it was implied that it was kind of a new book when... Marsh had it. And so there's a lot that's just not adding up to me in this section. Marsh here claims that he thinks that what those things were were codes somehow for like whatever political conspiracy is existing on St. Croix. But you're absolutely right. The man uh, in black, one of the one of the workers uh, and policemen here, asks why Marsh is armed based on the calculations in the book. And Marsh says, I'm not and has no idea what they're talking about. For as much as we've seen Dr. Marsh hunting in the expedition journal, he doesn't seem to have any particular practice with that or expertise with that. In fact, I think that this is very much a new thing to him that he's excited about, which explains why he's just shooting everything that he sees, because it's all new and thrilling to him. So he probably doesn't know anything about these shooting tables or about things like windage and and such, uh, at least other than what he might have learned from reading his own boys' adventure stories. That's certainly a possibility as well. (laughs) Well, the leader of these pseudo-police brings this discussion of the table to a close, and he has Madame Duclos and another boarder who's named Mademoiselle Celestine Etienne join them. And the description of Celestine Etienne is interesting, and it's probably going to become important in our ultimate wrap-up episode. So I want to pay attention to it here. She's very tall, and her legs are even stilt-like. And this is quite similar to the demi-mondaines at the Maison du Chien. But she also resembles the three men who have come for Dr. Marsh in that she has a pointed face and black eyebrows. And really the only difference is that instead of having dark eyes, hers are blue. Here again, what we could be seeing is an example of the plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery that takes place on this planet to differentiate people from one another, whether it is to meet a standard of beauty uh, for the profession of a demi-mondaine, or whether it's to actually look other than um, the group of clones, be it they whether they're slaves or whether they are uh, the only type of people that exist in Port Mimizan, as Mark Aramini suggests, and it's a reading I'm I'm kind of grown fond of. I also want to emphasize here that this is the same description as the slave in the beginning of this story, too. And what really fascinates me about this description and how frequently we're encountering it is that we've already been led to believe through the voice of the narrator of the first novella, number five, in his conversation with Dr. Marsh, the first conversation, that there is something called a planetary face. But it's not this face. It is the round face, this oval face, that seems to be the special purview of the upper classes, of the the wealthy elite of Port Mimizan and perhaps all of San Croix, that seems to be something they get done to them. But the narrator doesn't seem to ever have known that. Right, and this narrator here is also not making any connections between this face and the father-son clone conversation he just had the displeasure of leaving, uh, for us at least. He, he's 
not saying they were, it was the same face as the owner and son of the Maison du Chien. So there's just kind of a, a complicated series of things going on here. We also know that the that this mantis-like face, as it's described for the four-armed man in which number five recognizes himself, is a clone face. In fact, because number five recognizes himself in it, though it is altered in some way. Surely this is not going to be the last time that we get some some hints about this. So I'm looking forward to really talking about this when we've got all of the evidence and we can work really hard to try to dissect exactly what Wolf is doing here with all of these appearances or all of these instances of this same appearance. The leader of these secret police has called these two women into the room because he's going to take Dr. Marsh to the Citadel where he will speak with various officials And this means that each of these women will have some responsibility regarding Dr. Marsh while he is being detained for questioning. Madame Duclos, who owns the house, will have to keep Dr. Marsh's room locked and undisturbed. If Dr. Marsh is not released in a week, then she can apply to the Department of Parks, and the Department of Parks will send someone to accompany her as she inspects the room for rodent damage and is allowed to air out the room for a period of one hour. If Dr. Marsh is not released by Christmas, then she'll be allowed to change the bedding and air out the mattress. If he's not back in one year, then she can apply to the Department of Parks for permission to place Dr. Marsh's belongings in storage so that she may rent out the room to someone else or or use it for whatever else she might want to do. And if 50 years have passed and Dr. Marsh still hasn't been released, then the government will claim any of his belongings that are made wholly or in part of precious metal, any money in any currency, antiques, scientific appliances, blueprints, plans and documents of all sorts, jewelry, body linen, and clothing, and anything that doesn't fall into one of those categories, which seem kind of all-encompassing, will then become the property of Madame de Close or her descendants. I think maybe she gets to keep his shoes. Yeah, though by that time, the laws will probably have changed and and the government will claim his shoes as well. This is hilarious. I love stuff like this. And we're going to really dig into these laws in our discussion. So I don't want to say too much, but this just reminds me of films like Brazil or like the Patrick McGowan TV series, the prisoner where it's this is a picture of hell this is this is maybe the 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 only type of modern hell americans can conjure which is this type of system of laws meant to turn everybody into a criminal but it's also impossible to know what the system of laws require of you there's no justice there's no virtue here. There's only law. And it's fascinating that Wolf is really getting a a grasp on this in the 1970s, which I guess is when like ideas like this were really beginning to take off. The Prisoner aired in, I believe, the late 60s. So, and of course, Kafka made this type of thing famous. But I just love that Wolf is incorporating it here in his novels about the San Croix. All of this is utterly absurd, and, and we're about to get even more absurdity here when we figure out what Celestine Etienne has been summoned into the room for. She is given an identification card that's going to permit her to visit Dr. Marsh while he's imprisoned. It is the law here to give this card to the physically nearest unmarried woman on the assumption that she is probably the lover of the person that they're uh, bringing in for questioning. But even if they aren't, then he will later be able to transfer this visitor pass to someone else, but only after Celestine Etienne has come for her first visit in 10 days. They don't say anything here about that she has to come. So like, there's no sense here that Dr. Marsh might ever get to give this visitor cart to someone he actually knows in this town. Right. This is the abuse of data and probability to run a society. It's like they're running a society based on spreadsheets here. It's like, and it's absolutely nonsense. And Dr. Marsh protests when at, at Mademoiselle Tien enters the room. He says, I don't even know this woman. And they're like, well, it's probable that you have some sort of relationship with her. So we're going to give her the card uh, because somehow the 
combination of proximity and the difference in gender means you would be married one day, maybe. And, and of course, the irony here or the absurdity is underscored by the fact that he's literally just come home from a brothel. Right, right. And which could be the reason why he's being arrested, for all we know. Maybe number five has already killed his father, and uh, Dr. Marsh was somehow a material witness to that. And so he's being brought in on those charges. That's all I can muster at this point, uh, because that's all I know of this story at this point. Though I assume there's far more to it. There's far more to Dr. Marsh's arrest than him being a potential material witness to the murder of the owner of the Maison du Chien. But all of this is happening while he's not been told anything about what he's suspected of having done or, or, or witnessed or, or whatever. And all the while this is going on, he thinks that he's cooperating with these guys so as to avoid being arrested, which they've told him will be an awful thing, an awful fate. But as soon as this leader of these police has finished giving these instructions to the two women, he turns around and he does, in fact, formally arrest Dr. Marsh. And this brings us to a section break. And this is a a real uh, game changer of a scene ending here, where this whole time we have thought that something perhaps mild or moderate was happening, something that was funny for all of this absurdity. But uh, the scene ends with us realizing that the most serious thing that could have happened in this scene has happened or the most dramatic outcome has happened. Yeah. And it's a masterful bit of writing because the gun was introduced in the first sentence of this section and then it goes off at the very end. And it's just a bit of really excellent craft where Wolf is distracting us with hilarious bureaucratic insanity while all the time having our protagonist go deeper and deeper and deeper into this labyrinth of impossible outcomes. We realize that there's no way by the time we get to the end of the section that our protagonist could have had any other outcome than the one that we got. Well, we aren't going to find out any more about this here in what we're covering tonight. The next section of the story is a continuation of the prison narrative, but some time has passed, and Dr. Marsh has even been moved to a new cell. In between his last entry and his relocation, he had acquired a rib bone in his soup, and he's used it to communicate rather extensively with Prisoner 47. And none of this is of any consequence right now, but I I think that it may be in the future. Dr. Marsh tells us that when the guard came to move him, he had first thought that the sound of the keys at the door meant that Celestine Etienne had finally been permitted to see him. But when he realized it was the guard and that he was accompanied by a large man in a black hood, he thought he was going to be executed. He's not. Instead, he's marched around the prison for a while, and then he's put into a new cell, uh, seemingly deep in the basement of the Citadel. It's important to note here that he has no sense of place. He doesn't know where he is really at any time. All he knows is that he's changed cells. But to add confusion to this whole mess, to them wandering him around for the guard and the potential executioner as as he's thinking of this man, marching him around the prison, taking him down hallways and getting him turned around, for all of that, he ends up in a cell with the same number, 143. And so we either have to wonder here whether he's returned to his same cell, but now that he's changed scenery, smelled fresh air, he's returning to a place that smells like his own stench, his own filth, his own inability to be clean, and he doesn't recognize it anymore. Or this is something that they do periodically in this prison, which is move people around and give them the cell with the same number so that escape would be absolutely impossible. And just like with our last scene break, we, we just aren't going to get any more about that here. We get an interlude now with the frame narrative before we're going to pick up with the St. Anne Journal. In the frame interlude, another officer has disturbed the officer who's in charge of Marsh's case, the officer who is reading all of these documents. The two of them speak for a while, but what matters here is that the officer indicates that he's not completely certain that the St. Anne Journal belongs to the accused, right? He's not certain that that journal actually belongs to Dr. Marsh. 
Well, this he opens up that book, the St. Anne Journal, to a random page, and he reads. And of course, now we also are reading that, but we're doing so with this doubt about its authorship cleverly planted in our minds. It was not a doubt that we had prior to this. Wolf here uses his old trick of ending a sentence with an ellipsis to hammer home the fact that there's something we ought to be paying attention to in this conversation. Wolf loves to leave out these important bits by having characters trail off and then be lost in thought, and the reader is no wiser. But as we are meant to be in the position of the officer in reading this text, as that is the point of view we're supposed to be engaging with, the objective eye observing and going through all this information, I think in this case, the unsaid thought should be something we ought to be able to fill in with our own minds. And we'll be bringing that up in the discussion as well. That's going to be some speculation that's going to be fun to engage in. As we have gotten quite accustomed to in this story, the journal entry begins in Media Res. Dr. Marsh is transcribing an interview with a French-speaking man in Frenchman's Landing, we don't get his name, only that his last name begins with DF, uh, an initial that we've seen before. They're discussing the beggar who claims to be Anise, or an abo, uh, who's a man named Trenchard, and it's clear from the context that this is prior to the expedition into the back of beyond with Trenchard's son. Following the interview transcription, Dr. Marsh writes that even though Trenchard is a fraud, he may have picked up some real information about the Annies in the course of his impersonations, and so he's a figure worth interviewing. And this is an absurd notion. I played a doctor on stage once, but I did not actually pick up any knowledge of real medicine, and no one should ever interview me about what it's like to be a doctor. This is ridiculous. Right. This breaks kind of uh, Plato's chain of representations here as, repre- as, as relate to us in, in, in the dialogue Ion. This is insane. I mean, and, and what's crazy is that Marsh himself is motivated to even meet a counterfeit Annie's person. We're going to be digging into that a little bit later because that that's a piece of information that is very strange to me um, that Marsh is getting so desperate here that even meeting somebody false, he's a scholar, even meeting somebody who is knowingly impersonating and Marsh himself knows it's false is interested in getting something from this person. That, that seems like an odd motivation. And it may just be an indication that he's really just getting nowhere with his quest for the aboriginal inhabitants of this planet and he's really just grasping at straws well now we get the next entry and this begins at the beginning it's march 21st and this is dr marsh's account of his meeting with trenchard marsh had some trouble even finding trenchard's hut and so we get a really good description of frenchman's landing here the town is 10 miles up the river tempest from the sea with a waterfront on the muddy banks of the river. On the other side of the river is another settlement, which is called Lafange, which is just French for the mire or the the swamp. And it's uh, interesting to note that we have here yet another twin in the story. And speaking of twins, we learn a little bit about the tidal effect that Saint-Croix has on St. Anne, and I, I find this really interesting. The tide rises 15 feet, and so at high tide, the sea reaches all the way to Frenchman's Landing, and you can catch marine fish from the docks. And Wolf gives us a really awesome description of what the town is like at high tide and at low tide. A stark contrast, as you'd expect, and I actually just want to read what he writes. At high tide, the decking of these docks is only a few feet above the water. The air is fresh and pure and the meadow mirrors surrounding the somewhat higher ground on which the town stands have the appearance of an endless lacework of clear pools fringed with the brilliant green salt rushes. But in a few hours the tide is gone, and all vitality seems drained from the river and the country around it. The docks stand twelve feet high on stilts of rotting timbers. The river shows a thousand islands of muck, and the meadow mirrors are desolate salt flats of stinking mud, 
over which, at night, wisps of luminous gas hover, like the ghosts of dead Annies. So this is very much like the Maison de Chien, when we find that uh, Frenchman's Landing has a, a disgusting foundation beneath a fleeting glamour. This should immediately call to mind that sense of rot underneath the artificial and superficial beauty that is being maintained in Frenchman's Landing as well. What we thought, based on saint Croix and Port Mimizan being hell, of as uh, a potential paradise is now being revealed to us by Dr. Marsh as another place where human, the human stain, the human interaction with this environment has led to the corruption of at least the man-made artifacts that people are not maintaining the things that keep a place beautiful and stewarded and that this is maybe something that's a major theme of this novel as well of the last two one thing that is different from the way that we're seeing frenchman's landing here portrayed or this rot in frenchman's landing portrayed with that of the maison du chien or or port mimizan in general is that in port mimizan all of that is beneath the surface it's it's being hidden it's being obscured Frenchman's Landing, and maybe all of St. Anne, that's actually all on the surface, that the that what is visible to Dr. Marsh has both the capacity for beauty and for disgustingness or rot, or perhaps we might say has the capacity for something that is good and something that is disgusting or, or bad. So there are contrasts there, even though the imagery is very much the same. And this might play into our Dante's Divine Comedy reading of this, and this will be fun to dissect uh, when we're all done with this book. Yeah, I really look forward to that. Again, this is somebody who's, Dr. Marsh is somebody who's new to this place and see and encounters this type of contrast as unusual. And when we get this contrast in St. Croix and Port Mimizan, it is from somebody who's been experiencing it throughout their whole life through somebody who has gone through a house knowing that the rooms are only kept clean for guests and the rest is all just left because nobody can maintain it. And this is a doubling down on that type of encounter of saying, well, when the tide is high, we don't need to worry about the fact that the timbers are rotting beneath the thing that's allowing us to get food. We'll just only go out there when the tide is high. I just love what Wolf is doing here with this imagery and this sort of philosophy of humanity's ability and inability to perfectly maintain a world that they want to be in. One more thing that we should say about this description of Frenchman's Landing before we go on is that we had inferred all the way back in the first novella that St. Anne had a more robust economy and a greater population than St. Croix, uh, which we thought of as being a real backwater in this interstellar human civilization. And we still haven't gotten a depiction or a description of either of these planets in their entirety. But I think it's safe to say now that that inference doesn't seem to hold up. Both St. Anne and San Croix seem to be backwater colonies of Earth. There doesn't seem to be any particular difference in their economic strength or their industrial development or even their population numbers. Right. And one of the reasons we made that assumption was because of the the diminishing remarks that our narrator made about the poor trade, even though it's a trading planet, and the fact that people come over from St. Anne and people don't really leave Port Mimizan, but like the, the space travel seems to happen at the hub of St. Anne, which in my mind would make it kind of the hub for trade, the hub for interstellar travel, and the kind of chintzy tourism we get shown in this scene absolutely demonstrates that St. Anne is way worse off than at least Port Mimizan. Frenchman's Landing at least is worse than Port Mimizan. And that's an absolutely fair assessment. Frenchman's Landing, as we learned from Dr. Hacksmith, really is an undeveloped, sparsely populated 
town. They thought it was going to be a city, but it's not. Port Mimizon is an old city on San Croix. All right, let's get finally to Dr. Marsh's actual conversation with Trenchard. Uh, Trenchard, it turns out, lives in the shelter of an overturned boat. Trenchard claims that he is the direct descendant of the last Annie's shaman, and therefore he's rightfully a king. He also tells Dr. Marsh that his Annie's name is Twelve Walker. But Marsh believes that Trenchard is an ordinary human. He's the descendant of French settlers on St. Anne, who were themselves the descendants of an Irish mercenary who had settled in France during the Napoleonic Wars. And here again, we have Wolf emphasizing someone's Celticness, and in this case, it's Irishness. And Trenchard does have red hair, blue eyes, and a long upper lip, which Marsh thinks of as being characteristic of the Irish. But I have to say that I find this very interesting because although the name Trenchard is of French origin, it, it means something like butcher or meat carver. It's it's someone who uses a tool to cut things. I don't think this is actually a surname that's in use in France, but it is a not uncommon surname in England, and therefore also in the U.S. and Canada. This is the last name that English speakers have, not a last name that French speakers have. I do want to point out here that Wolf is seeding this section of the narrative with descriptions of Victor Trenchard, which I'm not going to comment on now because at the very end of this section, it hammers home, it rings like a bell, and that will be something to pay attention to, for sure. Trenchard himself is gregarious and extremely courteous, and he speaks in a rather antiquated fashion. And I think it's well worth just reading a bit of his dialogue so that listeners who aren't reading along with us can get a sense of it, because it's, it's one of the real delights of this section. Trenchard says, Dr. Marsh, I am not an educated man. You see that. But I yield to none in my respect for education, for scholarship. My house is yours. My son and I are entirely at your service for the remainder of the day, or the remainder of the month, should you wish it. And should you be disposed to tender some small emolument for our services, let me assure you that in advance of any possible embarrassment, that we do not expect from the Temple of Learning the golden munificence of commerce triumphant. And we are well aware of that blessed natural law by which the gownsman's guilt buys more than the merchant's gold. How may we serve you? I really love this character of Trenchard. He's a real scoundrel and a con artist, and it's one of Wolf's favorite things to write, I think, is characters like this. This speech of Trenchard's is in direct contrast to the fact that we meet him after we meet his son pretending to be maybe mentally retarded as Wolf describes it in order to get money and he won't leave and Victor Trenchard won't leave Marsh alone until he pays him money for his infuriating beggar-like qualities that they bother Marsh. And so we have somebody who we see has trained his son to act this way in order to make money and then turns the whole thing around and becomes this kind of valet of Marsh's. And it's just a real joy to see how Wolf is showing us one thing and then having us hear something else from the voice of the character and to just let the reader put those pieces together. Yeah, even though Trenchard is a beggar living clearly in abject poverty under a boat and has to sick his son on people with this act. And even even while he himself in this speech is actively asking for money, he doesn't act like he's doing any of those things. He really behaves here with grandeur and, and courtesy. And this, especially the grandeur, coupled with the fact that he claims to be a rightful monarch without a kingdom, uh, reminds me very much of Emperor Norton, who was a beggar in San Francisco and claimed to be the emperor of the United States in the 1860s and the 1870s. Uh, people probably know Emperor Norton from Mark Twain, who wrote extensively about him, uh, or perhaps more likely from Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics. And I perhaps wonder if Neil Gaiman didn't learn about Emperor Norton from Gene Wolfe to begin with. It's entirely possible. And there are some things 
that I will want to talk about with this whole scene in the discussion, but I don't want to spoil what that'll be about just yet. You're as secretive as the secret police who may actually just work for the Department of Parks. And I have as many secret laws. <laughs> well, Dr. Marsh wants to hire Trenchard to take him on a tour of any sacred places. But it is too late today because the tide has already gone back out. And so they schedule a departure for the next morning for a small sum with the provision that Dr. Marsh will also provide a picnic lunch for all three of them and that that lunch would be best off if it also included a bottle of wine. But before Dr. Marsh leaves, Trenchard tries to sell him some Annie's artifacts. These are arrowheads and spear tips that are made of stone and glass. But Dr. Marsh can tell that these are all fake. They're too sharp to be anything other than very new. And even the glass seems to actually come from local whiskey bottles. Yeah, there's going to be more information about that in just a moment. But I do want to point out that Wolf is hammering home in this section the fact that this is a tourist racket. You know, he's saying this guy... Trenchard is giving the old tourist speech of like, oh, we'll take you to all the places and point out everything to you. And we get absolutely no indication that anything Trenchard is going to point out will be authentic. He's saying, we'll just show, well, we can point to whatever we want out there. You don't know. And we'll tell you it's some Annie's thing. And you can take pictures of me and my son. We'll pretend to be Annie's as well. And it's just this disgusting kind of racket that Trenchard has gotten himself into as a way to make money. No matter what, Dr. Marsh does need a boat ride out to these places that he wants to go check out. So this is the way that he's going to get that. And so he doesn't argue with them here about what sorts of things they're going to show him and, and how much they really can know about the culture of the aboriginals. But Dr. Marsh does end up calling out Trenchard here on these artifacts. At first, he politely says that he's not interested. And then Trenchard gives him the hard sell. Uh, Trenchard explains that the museum at Roncevaux has even bought some of these and that castings of them have been sent all over the world and some have even been sent to Saint-Croix. And of course, we realize here at this moment that it is these completely fraudulent artifacts that are in that glass case in the library of Port Mimizan that we encounter in the very first few pages of this book. It's fantastic. This is just such a joy when Wolf throws these things in here. And and here again, we have this kind of knock on an illegitimate system in Wolf's mind. We have one in law. We have several about law, actually, in this story. And here is what Wolf says, uh, put in the mouth of Trenchard, again, about this system of scholarship and artifacts and things like that. This is the hard sell, Trenchard says. He says, you really should not be missing any such opportunity, doctor. These have been bought by the museum at Roncevaux, and castings made from them so that they could be sent all over the world, and even to Saint-Croix, so that you may say they're universally respected, at least as far as the system goes. <laughs> it's just a great joke. It's a great bit of fun. And as we've seen from the very first story that we covered for this podcast, Trip Trap, Wolf never tires of taking digs at academics and treating them as gullible fools whenever he can. Here, it's not Dr. Marsh who's being poked fun at. He's on the ball here, but it is the curators at the museum in Roncevaux and the library in Port Mimizan and all these other places. It's at this point that Dr. Marsh just says impolitely that he knows that these things are fake. And really, he's just trying to get out of this conversation. He just wants this episode to be over. But Trenchard and his son uh, insist that they've not made them. They're going to keep trying to sell these things to him, or at least denying that they've made them. And they say that because they are abos, their hands couldn't possibly do this kind of work. And when Dr. Marsh catches the logical problem with that claim, they have other excuses. And in the course of this, Trenchard makes some claims about his son, about VRT, that will become important later. The first is simply that the boy can't use his hands well. He can't even open a jar. VRT is often the target of physical violence from other boys in the area. And VRT likes to read books from the library. 
And this last point certainly makes sense with what Dr. Marsh writes about his ability to quickly master the material in his anthropology books. And I I think that this is going to come back into play later. But in this scene, eventually, the Trenchards do admit that they make these artifacts. And when they do, VRT says suddenly, The free people didn't use those things. They made nets by knotting vines and grasses. But if they wanted to cut something, they used their teeth. And there are two things to point out here. One, we've seen already that VRT himself is good with knots. And all the way back in the first novella, number five made a similar claim about the Abo's use of nets made from grass. And that's how we're going to close out what we're recapping today. There's one final note I want to make before we close out the episode. The way this conversation ends, I really love. The trenchards being called out for being frauds and not wanting to lose their money and lunch for the next day finally tell the truth and what what trenchard the father says is this we must have something you know something we can sell something they can hold in their hands you can't sell the truth that's what i used to tell my wife that's what i tell my son so here again we're emphasizing the wife is gone this boy is wounded by his wife's absent by his mother's absence and needs to believe these stories about the abos being real and his heritage from them that his mother maybe went to them that he, maybe even his mother he can find her as a tree somewhere in nature but also that the fact that the son victor is being trained to look at truth to look at objectivity as a a weak commodity that If you're going to sell something, it has to be fabricated. It has to be something more real than the mundane truth in some way. And and that's just a fascinating point that I want to see if that develops further in the story. Finally, we get all at once a full description of VRT. It is that he has green eyes, a pale complexion, and dark hair. And as this kind of description has been peppered throughout this whole narrative so far... The way it comes together at the end of this section is absolutely meant for us to call into question whether or not John Marsh and VRT look an awful lot alike or whether something else is going on. Because this is the description we get of Dr. Marsh at the Maison du Chien in Fifth Out of Cerberus. And this just reinforces the suspicion of the officer who is reading these documents in the first place that... The prison narrative and the expedition journal, the St. Anne journal, might not be written by the same person. I think that's a perfect place to leave our recap and uh, prepare to enter in our discussion. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you're able, please consider supporting the show by becoming a patron on Patreon. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you think of this book so far. Point out things we may have missed and let us know your thoughts. We have such a good community of thoughtful and engaged readers on the forum. We'd love to have your voice be added to that as well. Next time, we'll be back with a discussion of this section. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.